nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Kareem Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Welcome to part one of the Managing Madrid podcast. It's Thursday. It's mailbag day. A mailbag that we haven't been able to do for a few weeks now, but we're back to take your Real Madrid questions. And joining me, Kian Sobani, is the great Lucas Navarrete. Lucas, how you doing? Hey, Kian. I'm very happy to be back, man. How's it going? I'm doing good. Thank you. Uh, I've been missing these conversations with you. It's been a few weeks, and I'm yeah. glad to finally get back into it. So, um, we started this mailbag this season uh, on Thursdays, and as always, we took questions from patrons. So we have we have some interesting questions that to talk about, all related to to Real Madrid and kind of the current situation of the team. So we'll get right into it. The first patron question is from Ahmed Al Mayahi. He says, "Guys, I hope I can get this point across, and it really hit me while listening to the Bruges podcast that this is the pattern in which we've dropped points in the Bernabeu." And this really struck me on a personal level because every time we play at home, I feel there's so much psychological pressure due to the potential toxic environment that may foreseeably take place at the Bernabeu. Where should one of the players where should, where one of the players should screw up, and as a result concede a goal, the crowd will respond so negatively that it may make the situation worse. As a Maradisa, that is one thing I do not look forward to seeing happening because of how much this may impact the player, regardless of how professional he is. And let's be honest, one thing that can hurt an individual on a human level is the criticism you receive from your own people, in this case, the fans. So, um, Lucas, big talking point this was not only on the podcast, but also also on the press conference because it was the last question of the day. And uh, it did not really sit well with Zidane in the sense that he kind of, by the end of it, he just stormed off. But it's a it's a topic that is worth visiting because we have a long sample size now in the past couple of years. But if you want, you can take it farther back um, throughout several and I, I guess like points into the the last de- two decades of the club or so. Um, yeah, home pressure is it real? Yeah, of course it's big. Uh, we've seen many many players not only getting pressure from the fans, but also you know kind of giving up on their Real Madrid careers because of the pressure of the fans. It's been like this for, for decades, as you mentioned. But I don't think you can actually blame the current situation on, on the fans because we're seeing veteran players, experienced players, uh, pretty much you know, not performing up to, to expectation. It's not as if they were all young players, you know like Vinicius or so, who faced a lot of pressure early in the season, or maybe Hazard, who's been here for just a while. But when you see players who've been in the club for for many, many years just not playing well, I don't think you can blame the situation on on the fans because it's been like this for for decades, as you mentioned. I generally don't think you can blame the fans, period. I get get that it's annoying to have to deal with it, and I totally get that. I will also say, like, I think... Um, I think I've seen enough from the Bernabeu too to know that they do appreciate a lot of the good things they they see as well. You know, they're capable of whistling and um, and cheering the same player in the same game. And some people view that as like 
oh, this is this is silly. Like, how, how can you be so bipolar? But to me, it's just it's it's more of a sign of they're just looking at it objectively, and they're either disappointed or they're happy. And I think, um, I guess the most obvious example now that we can think of this season is Vinicius when he was he was dribbling at the players. He looked in his head, he scored, and then he start he got an ovation as he went off the field. I just think they. That you know, ultimately, it's it's down to what's happening on the pitch, and but but it's true. Like in terms of pressure, like it's a real thing. Like this is why the, the team can go into pretty hostile atmospheres. Um, this same team. Uh, do, you think, do you think Ian that the team is kind of failing at home because of the pressure, or is it because something else? Because I I, I just don't think it's pressure. I mean, the, these players have had be far bigger pressure than the one they're facing at home and you know they perform so i don't think it's because you know they're kind of afraid of their of their own fans and i don't think I don't so either it. i think you bring up a great point in that this team has been through everything i mean tony Kroos had that famous quote a couple of years ago where he said there there's no situation that unnerves us anymore because we've been we've had exactly. to do remontadas we've gone into the most hostile atmospheres and we've won we've had our backs against the wall being outplayed and we overcome it you know a few minutes later because we rallied together they've been through everything um so no i mean I, it's a good point i i don't i don't think you can blame the fans at all um there are times where i feel like they, the team plays better away um, in, in tougher games than they do at home in in easier games, and the reason for that, I'm not entirely sure. I think the pin it on the fans can be a bit unfair. Um, if you're saying the older players can't deal with it, that's I don't think that's true. And the younger players are have been some of our best performers, if we're being completely honest. Um, you know, yeah. you know, you can't. I think I, you can't. You can't um, blame the fans for pressure, and then you know, Rodrigo comes on within seconds and scores with with kind of understanding the situation and 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 knowing the i guess the expectations of the Bernabeu. i do think it's i don't i think i don't think it's wrong of the fans but i I thought it was amusing just like how and and a bit funny how quickly arola became a cult hero like he he didn't make a single save against um yes uh who was osasuna but he was just grabbing balls out of midair, and then the Bernabeu was going crazy for it because he was he turned he channeled his inner like NBA MJ just palming a ball in midair. Um, but then and then the game when he came on against Bruges, they they really loved him, especially for that big save. But he does look a little bit comfortable and confident, and I think ultimately that's that's what Real Madrid, you know, strives for is the people who can break that mental barrier, and. Yeah. And regardless of what's surrounding them, just put in performances after performances. And so I think it's it's on the players. And so whether the burn about pressure, it's real or not, I think it is real, but I think it's an easy cop-out to say, to say like, you know, that, that affects them and therefore they're not playing well. Yeah, the fans feel it, whether a player is actually playing with confidence or not. They, they can see it in, in just five minutes. Look at how they were supporting Vinicius last season. And why was it was that? Because he was taking every defender of the dribble and seeing, trying to create chances. And why was he like criticized early this season? Because that wasn't happening anymore. I, I, with this, I'm not saying I, I actually support the fans being this way. I hate it, to be honest. I, I hate that a player like Vinicius, who did so much last season, gets this level of criticism. I hate that Benzema had to deal with that for four or five years. 
uh, I don't like it, but it's the way it is, and we're not going to change it. And that doesn't mean that the fact that they're they behave like this doesn't mean that they're to blame for for the struggles of you know these veteran experienced players. Patrick Odiafati says, Hi, Keon and Lucas. I hope you're well. I'm very concerned with how much time Lucas Vasquez is getting on the right wing. It was mentioned as one of the three takeaways from the game, and I totally agree with it. Do you guys know why Zizou continues to persist with him? Yes, he does hard. He does work hard, but he doesn't offer enough going forward most of the time. Also, why is Zizou not giving more minutes to Luka Jovic? I want to see him playing more with Benzema. Uh, maybe the two of them can play with Hazard underneath in a diamond, Casemiro at the base, Cruz on the left, Modric, Valverde, and Isco fighting for that second spot on the right. Let me know your thoughts on this. Um, let's let's talk about Lucas Vasquez. Uh, I saw well, your first tweet question, of, why is it continues to persist with him? No. <laughs> the answer is actually no. So I can imagine that, of course, he's a hard worker. He's a, one of his loyal soldiers and all that. But at this point, it's, it's just, I, I just don't get it. I just don't get how you can bench a player like Vinicius or give Brahim and watching the game at home or even Rodrigo, who is going on his debut and, you know, showed so much promise. I, I just don't get it. Lucas Vazquez is a useful player to have on the roster, but I think the the 12th player role or the first guy of the bench role is just, or even a starter, is just too much for a player of his caliber. Do you think it's... I struggle with this one a little bit because, this. first of all, the squad is big and the position that Vasquez is in is a pretty deep position. So you're not, you're not necessarily uh, clutching for... Uh, you're not desperate to, to put him there. I guess the context of this game is that Bale and James were both, they had a knock. Um, Isco is not a right winger, but you can shuffle the scheme around a bit and put him in more central or whatever. Uh, but he was just returning from injury. Brahim, hard to throw him into the fire right now, um, despite being back. Uh, and obviously Rodrigo was there. And Vinicius. And so that's mentioning all the players that were healthy that when Bale and James weren't in the squad. Yeah. Um, the idea that Lucas Vasquez works hard and does good defensively, therefore that's what he brings to the table. I struggle with that because it that means you're assuming that players who are better than him offensively, like Vinicius and Rodrigo, don't work hard. And from everything I've yeah. seen from those two, they do work hard. Vinicius last season yeah. was great defensively. I had no no issue with him um, defending and helping Marcelo on the left. He did he did his part. So I think sometimes we label Lucas Vasquez as this like stereotypical like workhorse, um, and don't get me wrong, he does work hard, and I I do really like him actually. But like that to imply that the players who aren't more talented offensively also don't work hard and don't bring balance to the t- team, I think is a bit naive because I think Vinicius and Rodrigo, from what we've seen, they also work hard defensively, and I'm I'm more than yeah. okay with them there at that position. Yeah. Um, Actually, I just think that Real Madrid invested so much money on Rodrigo and Benitez that this guy need to, these guys need to have minutes. And of course, at the same time, you need to be patient and you don't like, you don't need to start them at the camp. No, if you you know what I'm saying, but you just cannot waste minutes for these two players who I just think they would offer more than Lucas Vasquez just to start, just to give him a start. I, I just, I just don't get it. I just don't get it, and it's. I think it's it's a problem right now. Having said that, I think like in a in a big game, everyone's healthy. Vasquez doesn't see the pitch, assumingly. Um, but I still think. Yeah, if everyone's healthy, 
doesn't, yeah. Yeah, but it, but still, like these are these are all important games at this point, and um, you know, theoretically, if you told me at the beginning of the season Lucas Vasquez doesn't start, but then he'll play at home against Bruges, I'd be okay with that. So in that sense, yeah. it's one of those games you put on the schedule. You're like, okay, if I'm giving Vasquez minutes, this is the one. So, um, but I think what pretty much blew this one up. Um, this talking point was the fact that this was not even a normal Lucas Vasquez performance. It was completely below average yeah. by his standards. And over and over again, just dribbling, dribbling, dribbling into the, the same players. Or he, he gets into that mode where sometimes there's a split second where he wants to turn into Neymar. He just he, he starts to try to yeah. kind of uh, provoke or coax the defender and, and he stands still and he does this little step over and it just is always embarrassing. Um, yeah, don't you, don't you think that he's been trying to do like too much for the last two seasons or so? I mean, he he was more useful when he kind of stick to his role during his first couple of seasons. I I, agree. I just think he's trying to much dribbling during the past few years. I agree, completely agree. I think like the when I think it's great to have confidence. I think you should believe in yourself. Don't get me wrong, but I think it gets dangerous when players think they're better than they are. And they start to play outside of themselves, and I think that's what happened to him the last, like, ever since coming on the stage, and being a perfect role player and playing solid all around, and actually providing good offense. And I still think he has that in him, but I just think sometimes he overdoes it and tries to be something he's not. That's all. Yeah. Uh, Brendan Power says, "Oh, is there anything to the second part of this question you want to address with um, to to squeeze Jovic in?" Well, about Jovic, we've talked about, you know, extendedly for the, for the last few episodes. I, yeah. I just think that when he's getting into the pitch, I, I'm i not seeing enough to give him a start. Even though, of course, Real Madrid need more scoring points and everything, but I'm not seeing enough to, to give him a chance to start consistently. Of course, you can rotate Benzema every now and then, but in terms of starting consistently, I don't think I'm seeing enough from him just yet. Of course, he's young and... Um, he'll have his time for sure well he's young and he definitely I, I like what I saw from him against Osasuna even though he missed two big chances I think he did well to get himself into those chances and then the third one obviously it didn't count but um, it was so close to counting and that would have changed things but I think with Jovic what's interesting is that we had a lot of questions come in that we won't have time to take today um, about like uh if we're if we're crossing so much, if the idea is to cross, why not put Jovic in there to meet those crosses? Because right now, against Atleti, we had Bale crossing them from the right. He had eight crosses, and they would go into Hazard, who's not getting into those. Um, or sometimes we it comes the other way, and it goes to Lucas Vasquez, and that's not going anywhere. Um, to throw Jovic in there, I guess in the four four two you could do that if you if you had Benz play a bit deeper. But the other thing also that I guess we have to point out that Benzema aerially might just be somehow one of the best strikers in Europe right now. In the like he yeah, he's improved a lot. Yeah, his heading ability has has been insanely good the last couple of years. So like it's not like we're completely paralyzed with the crossing, but um we don't have that uh with with Bale not really going into the box as much and crosses not coming into him. We don't have that dual threat the way, you know, Ronaldo and Bale or Benzema had or you know the way Ronaldo and Mandzukic have at Juve. It's just um, so maybe Jovic solves that, I guess. But Benzema has just been superb in the year too. 
Yeah, and I think Real Madrid should do more than crossing the ball with the players they have on the pitch consistently. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't have to be the main the main plan, the plan A. I, I just think that, you know, there are players to, to play uh, in a more efficient way than crossing the ball. So that's, that's a great point. I mean, it's nothing revolutionary, but it's, it's worth pointing it out regularly that um, you have a lot of brilliant players who can play centrally. Now, like the last two games... The one against Atleti, Fede Valverde just can't be that guy that James can be or Isco can be down the middle. Um, or Mordic provided briefly when he came on. But pretty much both them and Atleti, everything they wanted to do was down the flanks. And they just kind of nullified each other. And there was no real plan B to go down the middle. Against Club Bruges, I mentioned this to you on the podcast, only one time Hazard came centrally, got the ball, and had a basically had a bunch of, the, um, bunch of space to come in and shoot and put the ball just wide. And he only did that once. And um, and Hazard is the type of player, like, he can roam. With Chelsea, he went central. He went to the right sometimes. Um, exactly. And the very rare moments he's done that with Ram just so far, he's looked dangerous. So why not more of that? So, um, yeah, we, we talked about this enough. But, like, to, to summarize it, what you and I have said on previous podcasts, crossing is the most simple and basic tactic you can find. And I think when you're at such an elite level with players and uh, and yeah. and where the club is, there should be some some more to it. Uh, Brand, Brandon Stevens says, "I'm sure the negatives will be parsed out extensively, parsed over extensively, from Courtois' bizarre stumble on the first goal to the countless giveaways that resulted in both the goals and very dangerous breakaways. However, given how sloppy and careless we were in the first half, I have to say I'm somewhat pleased that we at least showed some fight and came back from two goals down." Casemiro winning that header and putting it in the net was sheer willpower. Don't get me wrong. In a vacuum, it's regrettable against weak opposition at home. I just can't recall the last time we got down by two goals and actually got a result from it. My question is, when the hell was the last time we came back from two goals down to get a result? Well, in the Champions League, it was against Wolfsburg, I guess. But in a single game. Because Wolfsburg, it was from the first leg, they had 90 minutes to overturn it. Yeah, right. Yeah. I I have the number for the Champions League. It's uh, 2006 against Dinamo Kiev. Yeah. But I don't know what the league number is. So if there was one before that in the league, I'm not sure. It's not easy to look up uh, because there's been so many performances. Um, On that note, feel free to... mm. I I disagree with with the point that a two-two draw against Bruges is getting a result. Of course, you know you minimize the damage you're getting. You get a point, and Bruges only get one as well. But it's that's not getting a result, in my opinion. And the fact that Real Madrid play, played well during the second half has hide has hidden a little bit, you know, the the terrible first half that they played, and the fact that also, you know, a two-two draw against Bruges at home is not enough. Of course, you know the team kind of earned some redemption during the second half. It's not as as terrible as it looked, but you know <laughs> it's not good either. It's always a bad sign if you're st- trying to salvage a point and coming away with a positive against Club Bruges, saying that you know we we drew, we salvaged it. I guess the reality is, if they lose this, it's disaster because then Bruges yeah. sits on four points. So the fact that they did salvage a draw somehow may save their save their Champions League season, which is shocking to say two games in. Um, but it was it was actually huge. What so that second performance is great. I was thinking of like 
to me, like sometimes we get caught up in point in pointing blame to one person or one figure, and I just think the blame is so dispersed right now over like multiple figures um, that it's yeah. just a collective failure. Because we can talk about Zidane's tactics and the lack of offense, but it's not Zidane's fault that you know there was a million giveaways that are just simple, basic football passes that yeah. just don't make sense. Um, that's not that's not that's not on him. Um, I think Courtois's fault either. Well, none of that. Yeah, exactly. So there's just so much blame to go around. And I, I just think that like, and then you can blame Zidane for other things. Like, why are they playing such a high line without really pressing properly? Um, why, you know, why was it that Varane and Ramos are defending uh, with no one behind them in such a high line and so many dangerous opportunities for Bruges from that sense? There are individual mistakes happening. There are schematic mistakes happening. I just think like at some point, at some point you can't, you can't expect like, Mordor should just do what he did in that for that second goal for Bruce, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Hazard question. Philip Hammer says, "Real Madrid need more speed. Eden Hazard is quick, but not particularly fast or speedy. Hazard also needs speedy options connect connecting with him. At Chelsea, he had speedy options connecting with him and help spreading the offense, uh, the opposing defenses. Even here at Real Madrid." Hazard looked his most impressive when Vinicius is in the game as well. Also, Cruz and Modric are old and slow. Having them as midfielders really kills any chance of a counterattack, which also harms Hazard. He's an easy target, but it's intellectually dishonest to point blame solely on him for Real Madrid's offensive woes. Well, of course, it's not only his fault, but I think it's just a matter of expectations. Real Madrid offered him, well, actually pay him uh, money to, to lead the offense. Real Madrid has spent... 100 million euros when they could have signed him for free next summer. So I think it's kind of fair to expect to expect more from him. If, of course, it's not his fault that Real Madrid conceded two goals against Bruce. Of course, it's not his fault that you know the team is not entirely playing well. But I think we all need to realize that he's he's gonna have to pick it up sometime or another because. It's not enough. What he's doing right now is is just not enough to probably earn a spot in the starting eleven if he wasn't named Hazard and Real Madrid hadn't spent that much money on him. I mean, if if, yeah. if it wasn't Hazard we're talking about, I don't think he should be starting. Also, the uh, we can no longer use the excuse that he's not fit because that's just at this point we're like nine, ten games in the season, whatever it is, eight. I don't know. At, at don't you can't use that excuse anymore. I'm sorry. Like it's. We're we're into the season now. If you weren't match fit when the season starts, okay, fine. And then you got injured, okay, fine. Now at this point, you just you gotta be you gotta be in rhythm by now because it's not it's not just fitness yeah, issues, but it's not just it, fitness issues he's struggling with. It's like you know simple passes. His first touch is a bit heavy sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I just there's something also in his head. I think that he has to he has to figure out. You know, he had that quote. Um, last week, where he was saying that at, when Chelsea at, at Chelsea, when you lose, um, you know it's it's not as big deal. But here, when you lose, it's it's the end of the world. Um, so maybe he just needs to figure out how to match those expectations, and he hasn't yet. But to Chelsea, I saw and literally fell in love with that Chelsea. The, uh, the Hazard I saw at Chelsea last season, literally, and I fell in love with I haven't seen yet this season and I'm not sure it's entirely down to match fitness it might be some of it it's, I'm sure it's a part of it but there's also something in his head to me that he's he hasn't yet gotten to that stage or realization where it, 
that he's the best attacker in the team, and he should be he should be lifting the team on his shoulders and taking players on and cutting inside and shooting. And I, I haven't seen that from him yet. I just hope it comes soon because I guess notoriously he is a slow starter to the season. Yeah, and but but by the way, I think his mindset in that press conference was great. I think he, those quotes were great. He, I mean, he showed criticism, self-criticism for for his poor start of the season. He's the first the first to acknowledge that he's not been playing to the level he's expected to play. So I think his mindset is great. I think, of course, I think he'll improve. I mean, he cannot be playing this badly for a whole season. He'll get used to the team and he'll improve. But I think there's a fair point being made that I I'm not sure if he's capable of leading Real Madrid consistently to the level he might be expected to. Uh, I I'm I just I'm just not sure if he's a 100 million euro player who can lead Real Madrid on a consistent base, basis. And I'm, I'm just not sure. I think he is. I just I just I, we just need to see it sooner rather than later. We can't wait for him to show up in springtime is my worry. Um in that and then, and if it if it if it if it's that long um, then the answer is you're right. He he's not the player that they should have spent a hundred million or whatever for. Um, but if he gets to his Chelsea level soon, then I I think he'll be fine. But I think what really hurt Real Madrid here against Bruges is that if they just have one one of their attacking wingers in form, then they're fine, or at least getting some sort of offensive creation to maybe maybe have a moment of yeah. individual brilliance. The problem was both Vasquez was a negative zero and and Hazard wasn't much better on the other opposite side. So if they just have one player who's in form, then that changes things. Um, yeah, and the, the Premier League thing is is such a different context. I mean, it's it just Hazard is not going to face those those kinds of defensive lines in Spain. You know, opposing opposing teams are sitting back and waiting for counterattacks, and you don't see that all that often in in the Premier League. Of course, he had all this space to run and roam and, you know, counterattacks and all that. And Real Madrid are not facing that kind of defense many times. So the fact that he was brilliant for Chelsea in the Premier League, I, I just think it's such a different context. But here's what I will say is that um, I think in La Liga, there are teams that have opened up more and more against Real Madrid than we've seen. It's not always just they're defending, they're, they're playing against this low block, block. But with Chelsea... Despite all what you just said, he was sometimes and most oftentimes the only good attacker in their entire team, and he was doing it by himself, which I think makes it more difficult. And then the other thing is, like you know, we've seen their most difficult opponent in, in uh, let's say, Manchester City last season. Um, arguably, obviously, Liverpool there too, um, yeah. but with Manchester City there last season, there were there were times where he was asked to play as like a, a false nine and like the only player in Chelsea's, in, in Manchester City's half. Literally, the entire team was defending and then sending a prayer to Hazard for him to do something. And he would get the ball like the top of the half. Joe yeah, passed yeah. like two, three players and like get into the box, uh, either get fouled along the way or get a dangerous opportunity. Like, So even like in, let's say, you know, let's say it's theoretically easier in Spain. We've seen him in the most difficult games where he has nothing to work with, and he just looks brilliant. I so that player is there. I just don't know when we'll see it. 
I think the the, the away match at uh, the Camp Nou will be a great chance for him because I think it'll be the perfect concept for him to, to shine and have that kind of space like he had in the Premier League. I think it's a great chance for him to turn things around. Yeah, I also like if we have if we have, it's true that like in the, this point about having quick players around him when kind of like your whole attack and midfield is slow, it, it's going to make it make a difference. I don't think Hazard is slow when he's in shape; he's fast. But um, like the version of him that we saw in Sevilla, I actually liked, even though he didn't really do anything offensively because there were, especially in the second half, he sometime he somehow grew into it where. He was getting yeah. the ball and carrying the ball up the field, and they had to foul him along the way, and that just relieved Real Madrid's pressure of pressure immediately. Um, so I like that version of him. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. The Camp Nou is one I, you know, we're all circling for for a measuring stick for a lot of people, not just Hazard, but um, of Zidane and 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 a lot of lot of things kind of ride on that result. Um, be it fair just or unfair. Thought about, I, I just I don't necessarily agree that Hazard needs. Quick players around him, but I do agree that Hazard needs, needs his teammates to to play quickly. I mean, it's not the same thing; it's similar, but it's not the same thing. And of course, in Madrid, Cross and Modric know how to play fast, even though they're not fast. And Benzema, of course, is one of them as well. So, the fact that Hazard needs quick players around him, I just don't agree with that. But I do think that he needs to play fast. He needs a, pass, a fast pace on a fast tempo of the game. Well, so to that point, against Bruges, there were times where every time he got on the left, he'd be swarmed by three or four defenders. And if he just looks to the middle, Benzema was usually open. Or, you know, when, when you're getting collapsed, someone's bound to be open. Now, it's hard to quick think, maybe, maybe to think quick. Um, and, but I think there were a couple of times where he was so conservative with it that he just passed it backwards and it wasn't, wasn't really looking for a more daring pass or a more daring dribble. Um, yeah. But, you know, the link up with Hazard is something that we have been excited about. And I think we've seen moments of it, um, but not fully yet. Uh, Okay, last one. Um, Kind of out of left field here, but Seydorf. It's about Clarence Seydorf. King says, hey, guys, what impact did Clarence Seydorf have in our squad when he was playing for us? And do you think our current midfield would benefit from a player like him today? I think he was a very underrated playmaker. I mean, people talk about his physicality and, of course, you know, he is kind of box-to-box player. But I think he was an underrated playmaker. I mean, Ancelotti compared him to compared Isco to him during his first season in Real Madrid. And I think, of course, Isco wasn't as, as physical and, and quick as Sidorf was. But I think this kind of playmaker controlling the tempo of the game very efficiently and he was he was very useful and of course he'll be very useful today especially considering that Modric is pro- has probably entered his decline he'll be a perfect replacement for him of course the S- Seydorf um, when, when Real Madrid sold him um, I believe it was in the 99 summer um, I think it's like you know we sometimes we talk about Makaleli and, and other players that were sold in Redondo I think Seydorf Real Madrid could have used him for many years to come because he basically went yeah. to when he went to AC Milan, he became a cornerstone of one of the greatest teams of all time, um, yeah. and I and that was the player that Real Madrid were missing for so long. Um, and literally, they went 
Until Modric and Cruz came around, they didn't really have the world-class midfielder, central midfielders to dictate and control the play the way Seedorf was doing with Milan alongside alongside Pirlo. Um, so, I, yeah, he's a great player. Um, I think, ironically, what probably was his downfall was that um, when Gus Hiddink came to Real Madrid, he just didn't really value Seedorf as much, and he just his role diminished, and then they sold him, and I think it was a mistake. But um, could we use a player like him today? Absolutely, we could, I think. Yeah, um, he improved so much in it. He did, as well. yeah. I he mean, did. He showed a different version of him. Yeah, he did. He did. I'm not sure if we necessarily would have seen that version of Sadorf had he not gone, and that and that's that's completely true. Um, all right, we're gonna wrap it up here. Uh, for our listeners, stick around for part two. We're gonna bring on our patron Philip Hammer to talk about um, some Maridisa memories and and some uh, some other things. So. Uh, stick around for that. Lucas Navarrete, thank you so much for doing this. Thank and you. until next week, Hala Madrid. Hala Madrid. All right, quick break to give patron shout-outs. As you all know by now, patreon.com slash managing Madrid is where you go to pledge, get access to bonus shows, including our loan tracker, which goes up every Tuesday. We review the Real Madrid loanees who played over the weekend. We watch all their games and go through them. Uh, talk about their development and then also midweek uh, postgame shows so this week from Madrid we did uh, the postgame from club about Club Bruges uh, and that is only for patrons as is the loan tracker so you get one to two bonus shows per week over at patreon.com slash managing Madrid make sure you don't miss out on those because sometimes we have people say you know hey where's the postgame show for this game and like it's over on patreon.com slash managing Madrid it's a different RSS feed um, so make sure to get access to it um, shout out to our $10 plus patrons who get a specific shout out on the podcast. So shout out to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Juan Balacio 01, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Grantakiro, Leon Stavernakis, Christian Gonzalez, Bjorn Salvador, Essa Hariri, Ilian Zako, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Tyler Simon, Sad Omar, Olwapamimo, Oladonjoy, Christian Toft, Charles Williams, Tarek Sphere, Konal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Rahab Poluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujaiwani, Pena Maridisa, San Francisco Bay Area, Brandon Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Zoran Bosnicic, Rafael Servia, Karen Scherer, Somanshu Singh, Brennan Powers, Ahmed Almayahi, Rovi Tagiev, Amy L., Anthony Armesto, Shabazz Sharapov, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Bernard Kufour, AMB6901, Daniel Pinkney, Magnus Lext, Jason Fitz, Solomon Ortiz, and Philip Hammer. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. It means a lot to us. And without further ado, here is part two of the Managing Madrid podcast. All right, welcome to part two of the Managing Madrid podcast. We are here uh, with our patron, Philip Hammer, who... Um, newish patron, but I think he's been with us for a couple months now. I could be wrong, but a couple months or so, um, he's joined the uh, the Patreon army. So we're very thrilled to have him on the podcast today. Philip, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, how are you doing, by the way? How are you doing after this very uh, maybe roller coaster of a month, um, which saw Real Madrid lose to Paris, have three straight good games, and then drop points to Bruges? How was your? How are you feeling after that roller coaster of a month? I mean, it, it. I kind of. I mean, obviously, I'm bummed out, but I, in in a way, I kind of expected it, 
because just because we we got all these new players and then we got the injuries and it was all kind of like we're we're li- I feel like we're living in the perfect storm right now. What does a perfect storm mean by the way? I I, I never actually knew what that phrase meant. It just means it's basically just a blend of some some the eye of the storm right. it's, it's the outside right. of the storm it's well, a bit of everything. It's, it, it's kind of like the um the everything that can go wrong is going wrong in in the middle of a storm. Um, essentially. Yeah. So then, so in, in this sense, we also had, we had injuries, uh, we had disaster losses in big games, and then we also dropped points for the second consecutive Champions League game in a row, obviously. Um, we'll circle back to this season in a second. Let, tell me about your story. Um, what year and how did you become a Madridista? Uh, well, I started my first ever Real Madrid game was the 2000 Champions League where we when we beat uh, Valencia? Wow, and that yeah. So well, well, yeah, yeah. That shows my age, but uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm. I just got kind of excited that you went back that far because it. Um, I always like to take it as back as far as I possibly can. So I, I wasn't yeah, sure what you were going to say, but that that's exciting for me. Yeah, I I was stationed in Hawaii at the time, and like, and one of my friends got me into watching uh football and he was and he was a real he's a real madrid fan too so we we won the champions league and then that next year florentino perez took over and and my my friend was like oh he's a business guy he's probably not gonna like he's probably gonna treat this club like it's a business and then for the for right out of the gate, he buys Figo from Barcelona, and we're like, "Oh, this is gonna be, this is gonna, this might be glorious." And then, of course, he goes starts buying Galacticos year and year out. What a, what a year! Are, what an interesting year to become Madridista because it's kind of, if I were to guess, were to guess any anyone becoming Madridista during that, let's say like, couple years here and there, I probably would have assumed they would have came with the Figo signing and then people jumping on later was Zidane and OG Ronaldo. Uh, but you essentially were there the summer before Figo even signed. So, uh, by the way, did you listen to um, the historical podcast we did with, with Ed and Matt about the, the Champions League final from that year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You do a good, you do a good job on those analysis. Like, I was like, you start getting flashbacks and like, oh, what are you, what a game. What well, a game. I always, I always think it's the... The best way to do it is just kind of relive some of those moments and um, and kind of just go through them like you did when you were younger, but with a more analytical eye, because I'm always interested to see how those games hold up when you watch them later, because as a kid, everything is like, wow, everything's amazing. You're not you're not as dramatic about it. Well, actually, you're, you're dramatic, but you're not you're not like analyzing everything um, the way you do when you're older. And Sometimes when you think a player is amazing or, or flawless when you're younger, you kind of see their flaws when you get older, but you also start to appreciate how good they are. And so it's just always interesting for me to revisit it. Um, but what what a I guess what a game for that to be your first one. Um, did you have mm-hmm. any context of like what you were watching or or that you just kind of dove in and you were like, I like this and I'm going to stay on board? It was like... So I, I I played a little bit of soccer, 
when I like like in in like junior high and a little bit in high school, but it was like, but then watching that game, it was just and seeing such a like, like a beautiful weaving of football. It was just it, it was incredible. I, and and after that game, I was just blown away. I'm like, wow, this. And and that was the first team, and they won the Champions League, so it was kind of like a. Uh, hopping on the winner's bandwagon, so to say. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then of course my friend being a you know he he's a Madridista too, so right. so he he hooked you in. It would have been interesting yeah. to see if you had watched like a game that same season, but a month or two prior, in because they were so yeah. bad in the league and they weren't really good in the Champions League until it hit the quarterfinals. No, nope. what's interesting about that year is that they sleepwalked the whole year. We're mm-hmm. not good. But then in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, they flipped a switch against Manchester United. Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously, you know, the, the famous results against them and then Bayern and Valencia. So like when, that, when, you, when you were talking about how beautiful that football was in the final, it basically started that year uh, mm-hmm. from the quarterfinals and on. It, they started to play like this really great football out of nowhere. Um, all right, so then you go into the summer of 2000. You go through the Figo experience. They sell Re- mm-hmm. they sell Redondo, who obviously you watched in the final too, who was amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you were you so like play it out like the the next year? What did, uh, okay. what, what were your thoughts? Right. Um, so when they got when they got Figo, and uh, and we had we uh, our, my cable pack we had uh, we had Sky Sports, and uh, I think that was like the big the big soccer channel at the time. Uh, he, when he signed, uh, or when Real Madrid bought him, uh, my, my, my friend was like, dude, we got Figo. And, he, and I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, we got Figo. He's like, I don't know what's more exciting. The fact that we got Figo or the fact that we ripped him away from Barcelona. And yeah. it was like, it, yeah. And then, and then, of course, turn it on Sky, and it's just it's joy in Madrid, and you could just tell like Barcelona was not liking that at all. Um, <laughs> they were not. They were not. Fa- Clearly, they were not fans of the move. No, it was the worst case scenario imaginable for them. Um, and as we've kind of talked about in in some previous podcasts, both this one and Churros Tacticas, that you know. That entire Figo story still is the most ridiculous transfer story in the history of football. If you revisit it, look at all yeah. the details and how it went down and who it went down with, and it's it's yeah. it's it's quite it's it's his entire like book. I'm not sure if like anyone has actually written a book specifically about that issue, but it could fill a book because it was just so. There are so many interesting wrinkles to that story that still that still fascinate. Um, so then that that gives you almost twenty years of being a Marista. So congratulations for that. And uh, so you've seen, part, I guess part of this is interesting now because um, I do feel sometimes with the newer fans, um, we I was talking about some, this with some journalists after the game against Club Bruges that like, you know, some of these fans who think this is like rock bottom and uh, what we're going through now, and what we went through last year, um, you know, are kind of feel they rightfully have this is rock bottom for them because maybe they've they've come a little bit uh they're a bit newer to the to the fan base which is totally okay but just like they 
they haven't maybe seen some of the darker days, which you've clearly witnessed since the year 2000. So, yeah. um, so let's yeah. start with, let's start with the good, actually forget the, the dark days for a second, but we'll get to them. Um, what are your, what are your, some, some of your fondest memories since the year 2000? Uh, the, so, uh, before the, b- before La Decima. Yeah. Uh, th- this is kind of sad for me to even say this, but the, um, it was the one, uh, I forget what, what match it was, but we lost, we lost, but at the end we started getting scrappy. Like, and that was like my favorite Real Madrid match. It was terrible because I hated Barcelona so much mm-hmm. and they just always kept winning. And, um, and at that time it was just like, ah, screw it. And and then, and then I see like in the last minute, some of the last minutes, I see Marcelo just kick dive right into a Barcelona player. Oh, so you're talking whole, about a classical right now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and, and, um, and so the whole, the whole place gets scrappy and then you have Mourinho put his thumb in Villalona's eye Oh, you're I'm talking like, about the really wild was, classico. Okay. Yeah, 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 and and it was like, because it was it was so uh, the five nothing shellacking that we got that year. Uh, the it was like that year was like it was so bad, and I was just so tired of Barcelona. And then it was just like it felt so, that moment kind of felt really good. I know it's it, it it's kind of not nice to say, but like it, it was just like a ball of emotion. Well, and it was just like, it, yeah, it, you felt like Mourinho was like, at that point I was like, I, I was behind Mourinho a hundred percent. Cause I was like, dude, he's fighting for us. Like he's just, he's getting down. He's getting scrappy. He's really like fighting for us. So that, that's, that was probably my favorite moment before La Decima. Wow, so you and went into course. you went into a brawl as it was one of your favorite moments. Um I <laughs> so obviously that was towards maybe part of the peak of the the hostility between the Mourinho uh yeah, uh, yeah. era and Pep era. Um Cause it which was, was quite wild. nasty if we're being honest. It was it was not Yeah. It was not like a It was feel not good. it was nasty. Yeah, no, it was it wasn't a feel good moment, but that was at the time where we didn't win we didn't win a champions league for year. Oh, we're talking years and hostilities were just brewing like from a Madridista fan base anyway. Like there was so many, we're talking so many years. And I think that was like the culmination of like, a, uh, just an ultimate anger. And then, but through that, it was like, you just saw us consistently get better brick by brick and then you know that really i i felt like that point probably ignited the the dynasty that we saw today because it was like you just see it it was just brick by brick we were building something you could tell we were building something Mm. and you know i know that i know it doesn't sound very good but it's like sometimes sometimes it takes some of those moments to kind of you know for a sports team to turn it around so well so i mean and, and i agree in part that you know like those dark days are what made the victory so much sweeter you know if 12 years of <laughs> not having a champion league trophy and building towards it oh, yeah 
the heartache against Byron in the Champions semifinal when you, you know, when you get, yeah. you finally gotten over that hump and you you get to the semifinal a couple years in a row and you lose in the penalty shootout in the most heartbreaking way possible, suffering yeah. for ninety two minutes before Ramos scores that header. That was like twelve years mm-hmm. of suffering released all of a sudden, um, as if like yeah. you know, uh, almost like a you're in a cage and then all of a sudden you're released after 12 years. That That's what it felt like and that's why it felt so sweet. The classical yeah. one you brought up is interesting because it, so that was the second leg of the Super Cup and I believe 2011, I want to say. Um, yeah. And Real Madrid were actually, they had fought back. I think it was 2-2. I might be getting the scores mixed up, but I think it was 2-2 until Messi scores mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with like just a couple minutes to go. Mm-hmm. And then Marcelo just goes into scissor kung fu mode on sesk mm-hmm. um and then obviously the Mourinho thing and then at the same time ozil and Va- david v are are getting into it they both get sent up and mm-hmm. i think what's funny about this whole thing um is if you look at kaka he's the only one not mm-hmm. involved in the brawl because that's just who he was he was like holding hands with danny alves in the corner and hugging um, and I remember just my friends being so mad at like Kaka for not getting involved and in, and not standing up for mm-hmm. the team. Um, but the, I think the sentiment that you speak of, um, while we will obviously never excuse what Mourinho did to Villanova, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the parallel is and and Lucas and I spoke about this in one of the previous pods about Ramos in the in the five nil in the Manita when what he did to get that red card at the end was essentially what all Maridis says were feeling that he just kind of unleashed and let go and started. Uh, first, he, he tackled. I think the red card was for that. And then on his way off the pitch, he, he shoved uh, Puyol in the face. He pushed Xavi mm-hmm. and left. And like that in that moment, that's what everyone was feeling, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like that's, you know, just just to go back to your point about like, you know, it, it felt good to just kind of maybe unleash some of that stuff. Um so what about what about footballing moments though? Like you gave me like a brawl moment. What about like a football yeah, moment where yeah. you're like you were so, you were going crazy or celebrating? So that was yeah. So that was it. And then of course and of, and of course La Decima. Like yeah, the way that it happened. Like like the the, the it was like a the game was kind of like a symphony. Like it was just like a you just watch it kind of play into itself. Um, I thought. I thought when um, I thought when Diego Costa was subbed out early in that game, I felt like that would come to haunt them, and and really it kind of did mm. because because when 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 Sergio Ramos scored that header, you could just tell uh, like they a- Atletico was just dejected. They they were dejected. It felt like they, they. It looked like they felt like they already lost. Like, and it, the the whole thing. You had the you know the Bale goal, and and when the when Bale scored the the you know go ahead goal, I felt like he already scored it as soon it was as soon as it was in the air before it even went in the goal. It was like yeah okay this is going in. You could see it unraveling, but it was like everybody was going crazy. Yeah, it was it was it was insane. Yeah. Um, Once it got into extra time, we all knew that Real Madrid were gonna were gonna win it. I don't think there was any yeah. doubt. 
Um, and I think Atletico knew it too because, like, you you look at their faces when they concede at the end. It's like everyone was just so dejected and defeated because they knew their legs had yeah. gone. Like, and you look at extra time. Yeah. By, Mar- by the time Marcelo scores, no one's even defending, and they they just they were done. They were completely yeah. uh, finished. Uh, I bet you. So for me, I'm with you. I I, I for me, La Decima is the most exciting moment. That I've that I've seen as a Maradis, and I've been I've been around since yeah. ninety uh, ninety seven ninety eight season, so ninety eight I believe. Um, whatever that Champions League final was, sometimes I get it mixed. I don't know if it was ninety seven or ninety eight where Mihatovic scored. Uh, but and I bet you, I could be wrong on this, but I bet you if you know, I find a fan or a patron who comes on this podcast and I ask them, um, and they say they became Maradis in nineteen forty. And I say, what's your favorite moment since then? I bet you they would say La Decima. I just, I, I, it, oh, it's really unparalleled in the history of the club to, to win that it, way. I just don't think. It was storybook. Yeah. It was just storybook. The way that yeah. it happened, like the last minute of the last penalty time to, to take it into extra time. And then like, it was, it was, it was just, it really was how, did they even make a movie of that yet? I, I'm like, it, I don't know if it's it in his just, documentary. I haven't watched it yet, but maybe it is. So I don't know. But yeah, yeah I I do think great. like um, I just just the way it happened. Yeah, it was just it was unforgettable. It's a moment. I, I it I think there's a case that it may be the singular most the singular the singular best moment in the in the club's history. Um, I think that's that's definitely on the table. Um. All right, just to kind of bring us back to this season, we have mm-hmm. October is okay. It's not it's not as bad as September was, but we do have Barca at the end of the month. So, what are your, how are you feeling heading into this month uh, with regarding the team right now? Just, um, if I said I wasn't worried, I would be lying, but. I, I kind of I felt like we were gonna I felt like we would be struggling, obviously. Yeah. Because there's just so many of the new players. Um, I wasn't expecting it to be this bad. Um, this bad now. Except I mean, within it, having said that, we are top like, of the table, but the maybe the the Champions League has kind of been a bit a uh, bit of a downer. It's hard to gauge, though, because it's like, okay, so we're top of the table, but you have Barcelona struggling, you got some of these other teams struggling, and then we didn't really do well in those two Champions League games that we were in. Yeah. So I also think, to your point, to with, with Barcelona struggling, um, there's also the fact that we didn't really build a huge lead while Messi was out. So now Messi's back, Suarez is back. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you just feel that margin of error just kind of tightening a little bit uh, with them, mm-hmm. assumingly winning the majority of their games moving forward, which I think they will. Um, it's And it's a tight race. Yeah. I mean, like, this isn't Real Madrid are undefeated. But I still think in the grand scheme of things, those drop points at home to Levante, uh, to Valladolid. And who was the other one? Was yeah. it Levante the other one? I, yeah. Yeah, I think I, so. Was it? Uh, yeah. I can't remember for sure, but... Uh, I believe it was Levante. Um, anyway, so the fact that those drop points at home um, may make a difference at the end of the year kind of 
I hope it just doesn't come back to haunt the team because I just feel like that margin of error just tightening a little bit. Um, and, and, but hopefully I, it doesn't. Um, I feel like we will, I feel like we will tighten up though. Like at later in the season, cause it's just, it's just not, there's just a natural, um, getting used to, you know, getting used to playing in the Bernabeu, getting used to playing with your teammates. And we, and the fact that we have so many players on the team and of course Zidane trying to figure out, okay, well what works, what doesn't, there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, so I just, I hope by the time they figure it out, we're not like too far behind or even out of reach or, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's also players we haven't seen yet. Namely Isco, um, has been injured and, uh, mm-hmm. and you still haven't seen Hazard get fit, but I mean like, you know, to me, the excuses are up for him being match fit or not. He, he just needs to get going. This is a... This is one of the best players so for, in the world. Yeah. So, so for Hazard, I'm not. Uh, I, I. It's hard for me to be too critical of Hazard, just in the sense of I like with with Chel, Like they're like, well, how? Why? Why isn't Hazard doing the same stuff that he did with Chelsea? And it's like, well, well, well. For starters, the team's not really built around Hazard like it was for Chelsea. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, first of all, we have, we, we really don't have very much speed as on the team to really kind of spread the other, spread the defense around and, you know, take advantage of counter potential counter situations. Um, we're, we're, we're not very fast. Uh, you, and you look at, you know, Marcelo's not really that fast. Cruz is definitely not that fast. Um, and you got, you kind of really need those guys to really, uh, and you even see it with, even with Madrid, even with Madrid now, some of the best times that he has, he's has when he's connecting with Vinicius. So it's like, I think that is one of those things that Zidane needs to figure out. And he, he will, he'll figure it out. It's just, you know how soon before you know we start getting into the meat and potatoes matches yeah and i mean this is a big game at the end of the, at the end of the month which hopefully you build some confidence in with some of the quote unquote smaller games leading up to it leading up to the classico uh, by the way my mistake it wasn't levante it was a way to Villarreal. um i don't know why i thought the two games were at home we dropped but yeah obviously Villarreal away um all right philip so Hope you hope hope to have you on the podcast uh, moving forward more often. Uh, thank you for joining the show, and uh, for our listeners, we're back uh, sometime this weekend for a post game show after the Granada game. So stay tuned for that. Philip, thank you very much, my friend, and hala Madrid. Ah, hala Madrid. <laughs>